Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Sean McDowell, Associate Professor of Christian Apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Sean recently wrote a book entitled Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Since every college student I've ever known wonders about and struggles with every part of this book's title, I've invited Sean onto the show to share his wisdom on these issues with us. Sean, welcome to the show. Stan, thanks for having me. You authored a a number of books and co-authored a number of others that I think have discussed some really important topics. And one topic uh, you've addressed is the range of issues in our culture revolving around sexuality. Uh, the book is Chasing Love, and, and though it's written for a younger audience than university students and their parents per se, uh, the issues you address are ones that continue to be challenging mm. during the college years. So I'd, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about those issues in that book that specifically relate to those college years. So let's just start off by talking about what led you to write this book in the first place. Yeah, one of the big things that led me is Scotty, Shauna, and Shane, which are my own kids. <laughs> and I, yep. you know, growing up in the 90s, there was plenty movies, MTV, educational system, plenty of ideas that ran counter to a Christian worldview. There were certainly challenges growing up then. But today with social media, yeah. for one, and just second, the the way the narrative has changed I found that so many Christians just feel like it's almost they would say something like, I I see what the Bible says, and I kind of wish I could live it out and defend it, but it doesn't really make sense to me. I don't know why, and I don't want to be a bigot. I don't want to be hateful. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be homophobic. And as a result, a lot of young people will then fail to live out with confidence their beliefs and just kind of hide which is understandable especially in non-christian circles so i wanted my kids to understand here's what scripture says here's why it says it Mm -hmm. and here's actually why a biblical worldview is for your best and for society's best so really it was to equip my own kids first figuring there's a lot of other parents and a lot of other college age upper high school age students trying to figure out the same dilemma Mm mm-hmm well, why do you think there's such confusion and even increasing since your time as a young man? Well, I think there's a couple ways we could look at this. I think one of the ways is just the narrative overall has shifted. So largely speaking, it used to be that if somebody was an American, they're like, I love baseball, apple pie, and, and I'm a Christian. And Christianity was viewed as largely being good. Not that everybody followed it. Not that everybody believed it. I'm not saying we had a Christian nation. That's not my point. Right. But I I would argue probably somewhere around, you know, late nineties and early two thousands, that started to change that if you actually think Christianity is true and you embrace a biblical narrative of sexuality, you are now the bigot. You are now the one Mm. who's harming society. And a lot of this is brought on, I think, a huge factor in this is the media played a big role, Mm -hmm. the way sexuality was portrayed and even shows like Will and Grace and movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obvious that the culture shifted and people slowly caught up with it. Right. And so there's a lot of Christians just feeling like, I don't know why the Bible teaches and how to live this out. And the other piece, I think, is just social media. You ask why this changed. It used to be. 
that, you know, people would know somebody who had a different view of sexuality. That was fine. But now it's nonstop through mm. every medium. I mean, I, I'm on TikTok and I watch this. The amount of videos that come okay. through nonstop is powerful. All over Netflix has been paid millions of dollars right. to specifically advance a certain idea about sexuality. Yeah. It's in the educational system. I live in California and I've read all of the sexual health standards starting in 2019 and it's it's not overstating it to say that there is an agenda built mm -hmm. into it from kindergarten all the way up. And I even mm -hmm. saw a study this morning about in Texas, uh, a case that was in Texas that parents that a junior high teacher was encouraging uh, those under the influence not to let parents know if a kid was using a preferred gender pronoun. Well, why would a parent in wow. Texas decide this? Just there's a larger narrative that has shifted over time. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of people sitting there going, I'm mm -hmm. not sure how to wade these waters. Yeah. So then what's the main takeaway you want students who read this book to, to, to have? Well, I'm writing primarily to Christians. So I want them. I, so I break it up into three parts, which might be helpful. The mm -hmm. first part is stripping away all these faulty ideas that are adopted from culture as opposed to from the scripture. And there's a lot of ideas that we adopt without realizing it. So there's a cultural understanding of freedom, and there's a mm -hmm. biblical understanding of freedom. Mm -hmm. There's a cultural understanding of love. There's a biblical understanding of love. There's a cultural understanding of identity. There's a biblical understanding of identity. So I'm trying to start by just helping students maybe be aware of certain narratives that they have adopted without realizing it. The middle third of the book, I say, okay. Now that we understand there are certain faulty ideas that all of us are tempted to believe, what is God's design for sex, singleness, and marriage? And then third, we talk about some of the thornier cultural issues like cohabitation, issues such as uh, LGBTQ, sex abuse, divorce. Once we understand a biblical worldview, how do we understand these ideas that are taking place in culture today. So the bottom line I want students to really answer your question is I want them to understand what the Bible teaches about sexuality and relationships, why it's true and why it's actually good for them and the flourishing of society. Mm -hmm. That's great. Would you say a little more about the biblical understanding of love, sex, and relationships? Yeah, sure. So, well, let's, so let's talk about a biblical view of sex. Cause I think okay. each of these could be understand separately okay so the first question really the heart of the question is is there a designer and a purpose who's made us to live a certain way in relationships if so we're only free if we understand that design and live accordingly if there's a design for my smartphone i need to understand why the maker made it it's not a waffle maker it's not a snowboard it's not a scuba tank let's understand the design first well, if that's the case, and I believe there's good reason to believe so, what is God's design for sex? And I think there's three reasons. Number one, the obvious one is procreation to make babies. You know, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God made the male and female populate, fill the earth. That one's obvious. Mm -hmm. Second is unity, Genesis 2, 24. Mm. It says the man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. This isn't just a spiritual oneness. Sex is meant to be in a married context in which there's a financial oneness, 
an emotional oneness, a mm. spiritual oneness, and even a biochemical oneness. I talk about in one of the chapters that scientists had discovered certain chemicals like oxytocin that when they're released in sexual activity creates a feeling of trust and bonding. So okay. make babies bonding. The third purpose of sex, and I think a lot of Protestants miss this, is to foreshadow heaven. Mm. It's a foretaste of heaven. Now, what do I mean by this? What I don't mean is certain religions would say, if you die in a jihad, mm. you get a lot of you know 70 virgins. That is right. not my point. My point is that when we sin, we hide. That's what shame does. In the garden, God comes looking for them. You know, where mm. are you? Mm -hmm. Sin causes us to hide. Well, in sexuality, it's designed that you unclothe yourself and you are to love and love another person amidst your weaknesses, amidst your imperfections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one way of experiencing intimacy with somebody that's powerful. You're naked and not ashamed. Mm. Well, in heaven, we don't have to wear a mask, not only for COVID, but a mask like <laughs> a social mask. We actually are known by God fully and know God. We know other people despite our imperfections, don't have to hide anymore and still love them and can be loved. So sex is not the only way, but it's one way of anticipating the kind of intimacy and closeness, which is what sex is all about. Our culture mm -hmm. says it's just physical pleasure. But in the Old Testament, it's, it talks about yada, this intimate knowing between two people on a relational level. That's the deepest purpose of sex. Yes. And so that anticipates heaven, which, by the way, if Satan can confuse us about sex, and if I'm right about this point, then he can confuse us about heaven. Oh, that's an important point. So uh, what are some examples you might have of college students you've known who've, who've embraced these ideas and how has that helped them flourish? Well, I'll, I'll give you my own personal example here, and I'm not going to okay. hold myself up as this model who's never made any mistakes. I'm certainly <laughs> not going to say that. Uh, we all will stand before God with flaws in a range of areas. So that's not my point, but I've been married 21 years to my high school sweetheart. Mm. My first memory of her was in third grade. <laughs> we actually dated 10 years before we got married, roughly. We were best, best friends through high school and to college. And the older I get, the more I look back on the teaching that my parents gave me mm. and I realize, oh my goodness, this makes sense. I couldn't understand it then. I kind of had to trust them mm. and just believe it was best. Yeah. But I'll give you just give you one example that that hit me is my wife and I got engaged right after college. And a number of my friends that I remember who were engaged would start thinking, you know what, we're going to get married anyways, so we can be sexually active. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a date. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't realize is they were choosing to engage in a certain kind of sinful behavior that would carry into their marriage relationships and sow seeds of mistrust in ways they never could have anticipated. So mm -hmm. I travel a decent amount. And one thing that doesn't go through my wife's mind is, huh, he was willing to push limits while we were engaged. I wonder what he's doing now. Right. That doesn't cross her mind. Mm-hmm. 
because in fact, when we were engaged, we actually decided to be even more careful and cautious, knowing that the pre- mm-hmm. the pressures increased. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of how I realized that my parents taught me that sex is meant to be between one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. And that God's boundaries, his rules and his laws are for my good. That's somewhat counterintuitive to say no to right. something is for my good. Right. That's what my parents taught me. And again, I made plenty of mistakes in my life. That's not my point. But overall, that narrative and the idea of God's design for sexuality, I'm reaping the benefits of that in my marriage today. That's what I want students to see. So I just actually yesterday, I just finished another book I'm working on for students months away. And the chapter on sex, I start off by saying there's a sexual revolution today. But what it is, is a number of young people saying no to the cultural narrative and deciding to live biblically, that person now is actually the rebel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, implicit in what you said is a distinction you make in the book that I think is very helpful. Uh, It's the distinction of freedom from and freedom to. Mm. Would you say a little bit about that and how that relates to this discussion? Yeah, Stan, I appreciate you asking this question because I think this is one of the most faulty ideas that all of us are tempted to adopt Mm -hmm. from the culture without realizing it. And it shapes the entirety of how we understand scriptures if we don't grasp this. So Mm. I've spoken to high school and college groups, and I'll just ask a question. I'll say, can you give me a definition of freedom? What does it mean to be a person who's free? Mm -hmm. And the answer I most commonly get from Christian groups is freedom is doing whatever you want without consequences. Right. Freedoms do whatever you want without consequences. So one group I pressed, I said, okay, paint the picture of the person who's free. And they're like, they talked amongst themselves, came back, and they said, a person alone on an island mm. who could do whatever they want because there's no restraint mm. and they can live out their desires. Mm. So I started to press them biblically and I said, I think you maybe understand half of freedom, which is freedom from. So, so, so it's freedom from restraint. Yes, freedom from versus freedom for. So to a degree, if you're thrown in prison, you lack a certain kind of freedom. You can't mm-hmm. live out the way you want to. And we'd mm-hmm. recognize, yeah, that person's not free. But again, that's only half. Okay. Freedom for is asking the question, what is something made for? And is it being used or living accordingly? So, for example, my smartphone, again, it's been made for something. What is it made for? So if it's locked up in a case, I don't have access to it. It's lacks restraint. But then when you use it according to its design, you'd say it's set free. Well, what's interesting is the Bible starts with in the beginning, God created. It's like a smartphone. We are made for a purpose. We're not an accident. So there's a purpose for work. There's a purpose for family, a purpose for language and communication, and there's a purpose for relationships, a purpose for sex. The purpose of life is to know God and know other people. We are made for relationships. So ironically, we all figured this out during COVID that actually we can only stare at Zoom so many times without getting like lonelier and getting anxious, (laughs) Right. right? Because we're made for relationships, I mean, ironically, even in prison, what's the what's the worst uh, apart from being tortured 
is solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of, it's a kind of torture. In fact, interestingly in the Bible, heaven is described as a city where there's people and a banquet where there's fellowship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hell is described as darkness, which is aloneness. Mm -hmm. So I started to press these students and say, if I'm right, you're made for relationships. That means the person alone on an island lacks the very thing they're made for and is least free, Mm -hmm. is least free. So what I'm trying to do is reframe for people because we tend to think freedom is just, if it feels good, do it. I'm the author of my own life. But that ignores the fact that there may be a God who made us with a purpose and we're only free when we know that purpose and we orient our lives to that purpose regardless of how we feel. Mm-hmm. Well, and that requires discipline. Mm. You know, to be free to do something means you've got to say no to certain things. I think the analogy, maybe in your book, somewhere else maybe, is if, if, if you ask me if I'm free right now to play the piano, I would say no, I don't have that freedom. Uh, I, I haven't disciplined myself, trained myself, put in the work to be able to have that freedom, sit down and play, play Mozart, but I could, but it would take some work, some discipline. And so that freedom too requires refraining from things, saying no to things, disciplining ourselves, uh, which is counter to the message in the culture. But I think the point you're trying to make in the book. That's exactly right. That's one of my favorite illustrations because take person A and person B. Person A goes, hey, that piano, I don't care what it's made for. I own it. I can do whatever I want to that piano. Takes a bat and bashes it videotapes mm. it, throw it on social media, get a lot of views. That's person A. Mm. Person B goes, oh, I know the purpose of a piano. And like you said, I've cultivated the discipline to play it and then sits down, uses the piano according to its design and plays Bach or Mozart or some beautiful worship music. Which person is more free? I think it's obvious that person B is more free. Mm-hmm. So that tells us that freedom is mm-hmm. not actually lacking restraint freedom involves embracing the right restraints that's true for my diet that's true for my time that's true for relationship that's true for playing a piano so these people when i ask students they tend to think light your freedom without restraint i'm like no we got to understand our design and what Mm -hmm. those restraints are and then have the discipline to embrace them then we're actually the most free Right. And then we experience true flourishing in our sexuality. I, I think we do. And flourishing is not how we feel. Mm-hmm. It's how we live and how we behave. Mm-hmm. So living out God's sexuality. Here's, here's one way to think about it. So one of my other favorite chapters in the book is I, I ask students, I say, would the world be better, the same or worse if people lived out the sexual ethic of Jesus? Mm. What would result? Now, of course, the sexual ethic of Jesus is sex is designed in the context of one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. So singleness honors God, marriage honors God. Would the world be better or worse if people lived out that sexual ethic? And very quickly, I start writing on the board, students go, well, there'd be no divorce. Mm. There'd be no crude sexual humor. There'd be no pornography and the various victims from pornography. There'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no abortion. Mm -hmm. 
there'd be, I mean, on and on and on, the world would objectively be a better place. Right. That's what I mean by flourishing, not somebody's feelings, but the world being a better place. Kids would have a mom and a dad present in their life and experience the goodness of what both a mom and a dad bring to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Well said, really well said. Another distinction you make in the book that's related to this, I want you to draw out, and that is the uh, the fact that God gives us certain boundaries or restrictions, if you will, uh, for our protection and for our provision. Say a little more about that and how it relates to these issues. Yeah, this is one of the things my dad taught me when I was I was younger. For those maybe listening who don't have a context, my father's name is Josh McDowell. He's an author, written a ton of books. And in the 80s, he actually, this is before True Love Waits, like a decade before, had one of the first uh, sexual purity campaigns that was global. So when I'm like 11, 12, 13 years old, he's writing books, creating video series, speaking around the world. We had him to my campus when I was a student to speak on that. You did. That's fantastic. That's incredible. So your experience being a student, bringing him on. Yeah. I grew up with a dad writing and researching and thinking, <laughs> and we're talking about this over the dinner table, like regular conversation. Right. And one of the biggest things he told me, and he would preach this, he probably said this when he went <laughs> to your campus back in the days he said god's commands are not to to limit us and to harm us every negative command has two positive conclusions from it implications number one to protect us Mm -hmm. and number two to provide for us and this comes from ephesians 5 a definition of love when paul says you know husbands love your wives as you love your own bodies Mm -hmm. in other words we naturally love ourselves the question is, are we going to extend that love to others? Right. And Paul says, love your wives as you love your own body, as you nurture and cherish it. Well, nurture and cherish really means to protect and provide. Mm. So a biblical view of sexuality protects from emotional hurt. Mm-hmm. It protects from physical consequences like STIs. It protects from a range of different consequences and provides for a kind of flourishing and blessing, emotionally speaking, from knowing that you're living out God's design and acting in a way that's best for another. Hmm. Now, what I'm not saying, I need to be very clear here, is I'm not saying to anybody who's listening this, hey, just follow a biblical sexuality, and this is your formula for having the best sex. That is not my point. I think this is where what's called purity culture went off the rails and oftentimes said, Oh, you think the world has good sex come to the church and we have the best sex. It was almost like I heard one writer say sex is used to sell shampoo, cars, burgers, and even the Christian faith. We use Mm. sex to get people in the doors. That's not my point. There is a kind, the reason somebody should follow a biblical design for sexuality when it's all said and done is what scripture says, be holy because God is holy. That's the heart of the motivation out of obedience, out of faithfulness, out of desire to love God and love other people. But when we act according to God's design, whether in singleness or marriage, we are protected from so much the hurt and pain that comes 
from embracing a kind of sin and living outside of God's plan. That's the larger point. Hmm. I've got one more question that relates to the individual. Then I want to shift to living in the broader culture. But uh, in terms of the student himself or herself thinking about these issues, many students feel they have to be in a relationship to be happy, mm. that there's got to be a connection to another person romantically to to actually be fulfilled. What do you say to people who come to you and say, I, I, I need to find a girl, I need to find a guy? This is what I'm convinced is, is, is my problem. Well, what I'm going to do is ask a lot of questions. That's how I'm going to respond. Okay. I'm going to say, okay, tell me why you think this relationship in itself is going to make you happy. Okay. What is it about this? Now, I'm not going to downplay uh, the value and beauty of, of dating right and getting married. It's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I know, and I again, I talk about this in chapter of marriage, is if people are feeling lonely and desperate, and this relationship is going mm-hmm. to fulfill me, mm-hmm. that's a lot of pressure on a relationship. Yeah, That's unrealistic. And then if they get into it and get married, there's going to be some conflict because you're bringing in expectations of your spouse okay. that may or may not be fair. Okay. So I just want to ask a lot of questions and help this student unpack, okay, what is it about that relationship that is going to make you happy? And I might say things like, if you're not happy and fulfilled, at least to a degree before that, what is it about this that's going to make you happy and fulfilled? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of people in relationships and they think, marriage is going to magically do this right you get married and there's financial stress there's kids your spouse gets sick and there's challenges and it's not the way they anticipated it to be and creates conflict and disappointment so bottom line is marriage is good and it's a beautiful thing but it's one way to live in relationship that is meaningful so if a student says i need to be in a relationship i'd say you absolutely do You need meaningful relationships and intimacy. Hmm. But is it that relationship and why that's going to seemingly magically make you feel better if there's a sense of desperation? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's going to do it. I mean, there's a lot of people, Jesus and Paul and John the Baptist and Jeremiah were single and they found ways to have meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. So for that student, I don't want to downplay the beauty of marriage and romantic relationships. I've been married to my high school sweetheart coming up on 22 years, mm-hmm. and it's it's wonderful, and I love it, and I'm blessed by it. But I don't want people to think that is magically what in itself makes life meaningful. That's a lot of pressure to put in a marriage, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that's God's design for the role it's supposed to play in our lives and the bigger picture of things. Well, I, I think your chapter on that in the book was really helpful, and I appreciate your summary of that. That was, that was nice. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit 
www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Let's turn a little bit to more outward facing, I guess, for the student. Let's uh, let's talk about the student who's a believer and is seeking to live a a biblical sexual ethic for all the reasons you said, but has a roommate who is uh, not a believer and uh, doesn't follow that ethic at all. And there's a lot of conflict there. How, how, how does a Christian student live in that context and communicate well his or her values, but also do do so in a way that that engender conversation, not shut it down with with the roommate. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to frame the question. I think the first thing I would say is try to have a longer term view and die on the right hills. Mm. Okay, so don't if this person's not a Christian, don't feel the need to correct and challenge if you differ with them politically. If you differ on issues, that's just going to build conflict. So try to find common ground relationally and in your beliefs. And if you have a longer term view of, you know, three months down the road, six months down the road, a couple of years down the road, that will relieve some of the pressure to feel like I've got to win this argument or this position right now. Mm -hmm. So number one, a longer term view. And then number two, just ask yourself, how do I love my roommate? What does this look like to love my roommate? Typically, that's not the way we frame the question. So if you think, gosh, I'm this roommate, I'm not a Christian, I have this Christian roommate, I wonder what that person would be assuming and thinking about me mm-hmm. and trying to understand where they're coming from. You know, a lot of that can just be listening, uh, trying to hear the person's story where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians, we sometimes don't do that. So just getting to know this mm-hmm. person. Now, with that said, if your roommate's a non-Christian and has very different views that you feel like, gosh, the movies that are being shown in here, like the conversations is affecting me spiritually and morally, then there does come a point where you just have to find another roommate and get out to protect yourself. I would just say, don't start there. Mm, (laughs) You know, have that downstream. So find common ground have a longer term perspective, uh, get to know your roommate. And if there's conflict, just try to deal with it at first, generously and graciously and fairly, Mm. rather than number one, let it go under the surface for a while, and then it's going to explode. Mm -hmm. Second, just having conversations like, hey, is there a way we can work this out? I'm going to bed a little earlier than you are. I know you're night owl. It's really hard for me to sleep. How do you think we can work this out or whatever those differences are? So do all those steps first, Mm -hmm. and then it may come to a point where it's like, okay, this is affecting me spiritually, affecting me morally. I mean, the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, has a lot to say about, you know, bad company corrupts good character. You do have to be concerned for your spiritual health. And I guess one practical thing is just if there's an RA or an RD, 
if there's a leader who knows the situation, talking these things through can help give you some real practical wisdom in your situation too. Good. That's helpful. How would you nuance that if the roommate is a fellow believer who's chosen not to follow a biblical sexual ethic? So that's, that's tough. I don't know if I would make that any different than any other Christian who's not living out their Christian faith on, you know, maybe they're partying or maybe they're Mm -hmm. cheating on something, whatever it is. I don't know that I, I I would make huge distinction there, although this tends to be the issue that comes up. Mm -hmm. I think I would first, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about correcting with gentleness. Mm it's probably not going to come across well if you're very judgmental and correcting and making statements and giving hints. Why don't you do this? What's wrong with you? That's just typically not received well. Now, there does come a time to confront somebody, but I'm not sure that I would start there. Same thing I would do is I would try to get to know my roommate well. I would try to listen to their story and their background. I mean, what kind of, when did they become a Christian? Mm -hmm. Uh, What was their family like? What was their church like? And at some point just say, look, we're all wrestling to make sense of our faith. Help me understand some of these choices that you're making and how it fits with your faith. I'm not playing a gotcha game with you. I want to understand. And our choices are affecting each other. Mm. Does this bother you? Do you care? talk to me about it. And I just want to listen. I want to understand. So you're not your brother's keeper. It's not your responsibility to fix your roommate. Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility to love your roommate. And that means caring for your roommate. That means building a relationship with your roommate. That means modeling a biblical, you know, character with your roommate. But that also means the right time in the right way maybe pushing and prodding certain ideas if it relates to sexuality, if they're not living out and just saying, Hey, let's, let's talk about this. What do you think? And just see where they go with it. Good. And I think that is the believer who's embraced the sexual ethic flourishes in that the others see that they, they, they see that, wow, you don't need all of the things that culture says you need to actually be happy and enjoy life. That's, I'd like to hear more about that. And uh, conversations might start there as well. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. That's wise. In your chapter on transgenderism, you mm. start by giving an example of being invited to be on a show. I think it was a, a television show to, discussing transgenderism. And then when you were asked uh, before the show to to share a bit more of your position, uh, the invitation was revoked because you had a more nuanced <laughs> position and it wasn't, it wasn't the script they wanted. And it illustrates the importance of having a more nuanced, thoughtful view on these things so as not to be sucked into the caricature others want to paint as the biblical position. So I'd love to have you share how especially Christian students can develop and articulate a more balanced and nuanced approach to these issues in, as you said, an increasingly hostile and polarizing context around, around all these issues. Well, this was the CNN uh, news channel that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And when they asked me, I was going to come on to talk about the Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner story. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to call in and they said, what's your position? As best I can remember, my answer was something effective. Jesus loves people who are transgender 
uh, we've got to look across political lines and find common ground to help this hurting community. Mm-hmm. And the response from the producer was, you're much too compassionate. We can't have you on, which didn't fit the script Mm -hmm. that they wanted for this show at this time. Mm -hmm. And the reason I start by sharing that is I want to make sure readers of the book realize that there is a script about all sorts of issues of sexuality, Mm -hmm. and in particular when it comes to transgender, that does not line up with a biblical worldview. That's step number one. But step number two, this also, although we're going to talk about transgender ideology, most people I've talked with who are transgender are trying to make the same, get the same thing out of life that everybody else wants. They're trying to find freedom and relationships Mm -hmm. and peace Mm -hmm. and happiness. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be transgender to be an activist, right? And you can be, you can be an activist and not transgender. You can be transgender, not an activist. We have to make sure that when we talk about this, it's with compassion and with kindness, because there's real people tied to this issue, not just ideas. And Jesus is the one who gave the ethic of loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So with that said, we also, the Bible talks a lot about not being taken in by faulty ideas like Colossians 2.8 and empty philosophies of the world. And that's something we could call transgender ideology. Some refer to it as transgenderism. It's a philosophical system that is pushing through the educational system, through healthcare, through the media, through the school system, a certain idea of what it means to be human that is very different than a biblical idea. Mm-hmm. So as Christians, we need to start by going back to scripture. And I think scripture says a few things. It says, number one, that Sex is something essential to being human. We see this in Genesis 1. God made the male and female. It's not like height or, you know, skin color. These are secondary to our identity. God could have made three sexes or made us asexual. He made us male and female. So biological sex is an essential part of what it means to be human. We also see scripture consistently teaching that we are to live out with our gender identity That language is not in the scripture, but we are to live out what is now called gender identity in a way that matches up with our biological sex. Mm -hmm. There's a way being maleness and a way being female, and we're called to live in congruence with that. But third, scripture doesn't give specifics of what that always looks like. So that might look different in Scotland where you can wear a kilt or Fiji where you can wear a wrap than it might in New York City or LA. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is we realize sex is essential to being human. We're called to live out our gender identity in congruence with our biological sex. But we have to be careful not to adopt certain stereotypes from the culture about boys wear blue and girls wear pink, which are stereotypes and have nothing to do with real masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice illustration of the biblical mandate to speak truth in love right? There's the importance of understanding, of, uh, of, of showing love, of, of approaching people as people and all the things you started with, but that doesn't negate there are certain truths that need to be affirmed in the right way and at the right time with clarity and with, uh, with sometimes a great deal of, uh, of conviction if you've really studied it and come to that point as you have. So I like the way you illustrated the truth and love unity there. 
Well, I, I hope so. That's a part of the book is calling students to stand up for biblical yeah. worldview, yeah. but also trying to convince them that actually embracing and living it out of biblical worldview is the loving thing to do mm-hmm. for their neighbor, even if their neighbor doesn't see it. Right. And this is somewhat of a radical example, but the people who are putting Jesus to death, at least many of them thought they were doing what was right. Yeah. You know, you think about the prodigal son, he went and lived in wild living for a while and then came to his senses. Now, even when the prodigal son seemed to believe a certain thing was right and good, it still wasn't in his best interest to engage in that behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of confusion in our culture. Sometimes our culture gets love right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it gets it wrong. But I'm trying to encourage young people to realize that following a biblical ethic, regardless of what people say or the culture narrative, is actually the loving thing to do. Mm-hmm. But make sure they carry it out with a spirit of kindness towards right. others. So kind of right. kindness, love, conviction together, I think is the biblical model. Good. Very good. Well, as you wrestled with the, all these issues, and the, the book's got uh, 30 chapters in it, so... Uh, readers need to know that it covers the waterfront very well. A lot of the important issues, I think all the important issues. Which of those chapters did you find it hardest to write? So for those who are thinking, oh, this might be a helpful book. Yes, 30 chapters, but each chapter is 1,500 words. So it's like four to five pages. Right. And I limited it to force myself to have nothing (laughs) extraneous, stay on point and get right to the heart of it. Yeah. So it's not a super lengthy book. I think people will find it's just value in their time. Mm -hmm. Good point. Probably the hardest chapter in the book was the one on sex abuse. Mm. And I think for two reasons, I have not experienced sexual abuse. I know a high percentage. I've seen some studies, 20, 30, 40% of people, depending on how we define and understand the nature of sexual abuse. Uh, And this is a deep, hurtful experience for many people. Mm -hmm. My own father was for seven years from six to 13 years old, grown up in the forties, severely sexually abused by someone who lived on their farm in Michigan. Yeah. He shared about that many times. He has publicly mm-hmm. and all still mm-hmm. when he talks about it, he's forgiven the man who did this, mm-hmm. but still has the memories and sure. the memory of the pain from that. So it was hard for me to write on it, not having had that experience, yeah. but also knowing how sensitive a topic mm-hmm. this is. Mm-hmm. So a good friend of mine, uh, Lisa Michelle, who also has talked publicly about the abuse she has experienced, I asked her if she'd be willing to read it to make sure it's accurate and sensitive. And she went through it for me and just gave me, gave me great feedback. And I also had to read a ton Good. of books on sex mm. abuse. So I think that was the one I was tempted to not write because I don't consider myself an expert on that, Mm -hmm. but I just felt like I can't write a book on this and not address that topic. Oh, sure. And you had her on the podcast you do with Scott Ray, I believe, uh, Think Biblically a little while ago. Is that right? Yeah, we did. We had a couple of years ago and she's actually has a book that is just coming out on this. I'm going to have her on my YouTube channel soon, but Mm. her story, I mean, you talk about unbelievable brokenness going back to her father and the way Mm -hmm. he treated her is Mm -hmm. just, I mean, abysmal. Mm -hmm. And she had pretty radical experiences in the 1980s with the rock bands we've heard of like Poison and um, Guns N' Roses traveling to these bands. And then being in Hollywood, she tells a story in her book about 
meeting Nicolas Cage. And so she just has this mm-hmm. background of all the things that people would think make you happy and yet deep brokenness and is still able to forgive and mm. love her father mm-hmm. who abused her. Mm. I mean, that is supernatural. And that's what Jesus meant by the truth that sets you free. Mm-hmm. She saw her father come to Christ before he died. I mean, it's just, wow. it's such a powerful story that even amidst sexual abuse, the power of God can relieve us from that. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to mm-hmm. weigh on her story and experience because she's she's lived through it. Absolutely. Well, as we've mentioned, you've touched on a lot of hot button issues in this book. Where have you received the most pushback, either from the book itself or as you've spoken on these topics in different contexts? Well, I've spoken on the topic of pornography a decent amount and received some pushback there, not typically from Christians. The other area is just on the LGBTQ conversation, and I've spoken quite a bit on this. Mm. And it's very reluctant for me to speak on this topic. In some ways, I don't want to. Every time I do a podcast or book review, I'm like, this is the final one. I'm moving on. (laughs) And then a new book comes out, Mm. and then a new argument is made. And there's not a lot of Christians who Mm. I find who are just scholars and who are thinkers Mm-hmm. who are stepping up to the plate, being as gracious as they can be, willing to take the fire and addressing these issues. So mm-hmm. probably in the area of LGBTQ, at least in this book, I've received the most pushback. Mm-hmm. And a little bit on purity culture, that's been a hot topic amongst conservatives and especially progressives. There's a lot of criticism of purity culture. Yeah, and I'm not sure everyone will know what that term means. Yeah, so good. So purity culture is a term that's been used probably like the mid nineties with the start of true love weights into like the early 2010s. So books like Joshua Harris, I kiss dating goodbye. A lot of other writers and speakers and movements get lumped into what's called purity culture. And I think there was a lot of good that was a part of purity culture. They told us that you can say no to sexual pressure. They helped us understand that sexuality is a big deal They helped us understand that there's a cultural narrative of sex and a biblical narrative of sex. But sometimes in there, there were some unhealthy ideas Mm. that I needed to bring correction to within my book. Ideas like I mentioned earlier, what's been called the sexual prosperity gospel. Mm, We've kind of given the message that if you just don't have sex now, your life will be filled with and follow God's plan, endless sexual bliss when you get married. Okay. And then there's a generation of people going, um, I'm still single and others who get married and are like, this isn't how I was told it would pan out. Got it. That's one challenge. In fact, I had a girl named Rachel Joy Welcher. She wrote a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture. To me, that's the single best critique of purity culture. Hmm. And I had her on my show and she was told this, got married to a guy. I think if I remember correctly, maybe was a worship pastor, blessed by her pastor, blessed by her parents. And then like five years in the marriage, she becomes an atheist and divorces her. So that shows we Mm -hmm. can't have a formula Mm -hmm. that guarantees this. So that was one criticism of purity culture. Purity culture also often didn't address the LGBTQ conversation. Mm. And so many students with same-sex attraction and culture was different than admittedly, but many felt like I'm invisible. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, Other critiques didn't talk about singleness. 
And mm. sometimes I think in, in Joshua Harris's book, it was like, if you just pray, God will bring you this spouse. And there was an emphasis on marriage completing you, ah, okay. which is just marriage has become an idolatry, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. idolatrous in times of the church. So that's what I mean by purity culture. Got it. So my book, since it's written for students, they don't know what purity culture is. I took a lot of those criticisms and just tried to make corrections and make sure what I was teaching was biblical. Mm. But there's some people to the right who still believe certain ideas of purity culture that have pushed back. And mm-hmm. then there's still some progressives to my left who've like, you haven't gone far enough. Mm-hmm. And my bottom line is if I'm teaching what scripture said in the sexual ethic of Jesus, bring on the criticism. I can live with that. Exactly. Good. And, and you know what, Stan, here's the thing too. I look back, it's easy for people to criticize purity culture because they weren't there. Mm. they're looking back now in a different culture in a different time but a lot of those people who wrote then were pioneers and there was not there was fear about stds Mm. and aids kind of like there has been recently with covid Mm -hmm. so i don't excuse ideas that aren't biblical we always have to correct it but there's been such just vitriolic holier than thou criticism i think i'm not sure that's really balanced and fair and nuanced. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to challenge those ideas, but I want to have grace to my predecessors yeah, sure. because guess what? You and I, in 10 years, people are going to That's look right. back and listen to this podcast <laughs> and go, you know what? They got that wrong. And all I can say is I did my best before the Lord. Mm-hmm. I hope you'll have some grace for me. Good point. Well, well spoken. Appreciate that. So what do you wish you would have addressed in the book that you didn't? Nothing. I'm dead serious. I, I, I don't, I, I haven't, I covered all the topics I wanted to. Um, There's been a couple smaller points that I've read and like studies I found since it was published. I was like, oh, that's good. When I do an update, I'll include this. Yeah. But uh, honestly, in this book, I I spent so much time, those 30 chapters, every single one, that structure, that book, I was in chat rooms talking with students, talking with Mm. youth pastors. Mm. You know, each chapter, I came up with the top 30 questions that people are asked. And I answer in 100 words at the end, just mm. like how far is too far? Mm. Uh, you know, and one big theme today is like, is sex with a robot? Okay, like that seems like a bizarre question, but that is a movement. And I address that. But every one of those questions, I got tons of feedback from people to try to incorporate it. So I can honestly mm. tell you, there's not any big issues now will culture shift in two to three to five years and new issues come sure but i can't i can't control that yeah it really seemed thorough to me it's nice to hear you say Mm -hmm. that (laughs) so where is there hope as we draw to a close given the relational and sexual direction the culture is going and and therefore the pressure christian students face where do you see hope Well, two things. First is my minor point is there are a lot of young people who get it. There's a lot of young people who are reading this book and not, I mean, reading the book is secondary, but embracing a biblical sexual ethic Mm. and living it out. I see some of these young people on TikTok. I see some of them on, you know, on Instagram and other social media areas, Mm -hmm. believing and embracing and trying to live out this sexual ethic. So they're not represented. You typically don't hear about them as much, but there are a ton of young people, Stan. I'm telling you, when I speak on this topic, overwhelmingly, 
students will say to me, high school and college, they'll say things like, I just haven't heard this before. This gives me confidence. This helps me understand what the scripture teaches mm-hmm. and the conviction to live it out. So my hope is this message is oftentimes received well by Christian kids who want to live it out. Mm-hmm. But second, even if there wasn't a single young person who lived it out, my hope when it's all said and done has to be in the person of Jesus. I'm not going to say I wake up every day just feeling 100% hopeful. I am a, a, just naturally a skeptic about things. So I find myself wallowing away and having to go, wait a minute, Jesus didn't jump out of the grave when, you know, SCOTUS embraced same-sex marriage. Like, give me a break. God is just <laughs> as in control as he ever was. Mm. And so our hope has to be in the person of Jesus. This is what First Thessalonians is about. Like we don't grieve like those without hope. So it's if I focus on just reading the news and the stories and the culture, mm-hmm. I can start to get pessimistic and it can affect me. Mm-hmm. That's why I have to bring myself back to what scripture says. Mm-hmm. But frankly, not only young people, I see hope. For example, the pro-life movement today is accomplishing a lot of good. And we'll see what happens with Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade. No one really knows, but there is some hope that lives can be saved Mm -hmm. from some of the work that pro-life movements have done. So there are some positive things taking place that do give me hope. Good, good. Well, Sean, this has been super helpful. Anything else you want to make sure we touch on? Stan, you have asked the right questions. Thank you for reading my book. Thank you for being prepared. I try to do the same thing with my guests. It's obvious you've you've done that. So I, you know, for college students who are watching this, I would just encourage and remind them. I'd say, look, I've been there. I, I get it. It's not easy mm. to follow the road of living out a biblical sexual ethic. But number one, like you said before, you'd be surprised at the people around you. If they don't see it now, years down the road, they may. Mm. I've had teammates and classmates, high school and college, contact me and are like, you know what? I'm in my life as a mess. I remember the way you were living. Talk to me about that. Mm. So living this out, it might cost you something now, but you have no idea how many people are watching and who you could minister to in the long term perspective Mm -hmm. of your life Mm -hmm. and second the final chapter in the book is just titled you can do it you can i'm not going to say it's easy but with the power of the holy spirit with the power of scripture finding good christian friends Mm -hmm. a mentor the church you can live out god's design for sex and marriage and flourish in the way god wants you to so i want to tell students the narrative of our culture is well they're going to do it anyways. And I'm like, no, actually we have agency and you can make choices. Mm-hmm. Now, if you haven't, if you're watching this, like, gosh, I've blown it. Then God's grace applies to you. Please know that. I had a girl email me a while ago and she said, you know, I'm hooked on porn. What do I do? And I connected her with another woman, a former student of mine to help her out. And I said, I'm going to connect you with my friend, but I want you to know one thing, God loves you and God forgives you. Two years later, she wrote me an email through my site and just said, I want you to know those words that God could love me in my brokenness wrecked me. And I haven't looked at porn since. 
Wow. That's the power of grace. So if mm-hmm. you've blown mm-hmm. it big or small, God's grace applies to you. Today is a new day. Maybe the most important thing you've said. So uh, that's so important <laughs> to every day remind ourselves of that the gospel's for us too, even after mm-hmm. we come to faith. <laughs> Amen. Well, where can listeners go to learn more besides reading the book, which I highly recommend? Where else would you suggest they go? So the central hub would just be my website, seanmcdowell.org. But that's got links to a blog that I write. That's got links to my YouTube channel. If you're on YouTube, I do one or two videos a week. And I have an entire playlist on sex, love, and relationships. And I've done a ton of interviews with people on LGBTQ topics, on God's design for sexuality. I mean, in-depth teaching that, that addresses some of the biggest issues of today. Mm-hmm. So that's one I'm on Instagram as well. And I don't just do stupid cat videos. A lot of my social media is to equip and train and inspire people, give them resources. I'm on Twitter. I'm also on TikTok. I do short videos, answering tough questions and now and then kind of fun stuff. So all over social media, start with seanmcdow.org, but love to connect on YouTube and Instagram Twitter and TikTok are some of the main hubs that I'm on. Great. And I'll try to put all that in the show notes so people can access that easily. I also want to mention the podcast you do with Scott Ray, the Mm. ethicist there at uh, Talbot School of Theology called Think Biblically. I think you and Scott do an excellent job on that podcast, not just addressing these type of issues, but a whole range of issues Mm. relevant for Christians at all stages and ages. So uh, thanks for your work on that as well. Well, thanks. My pleasure. The good thing with that is you can just listen to it. Don't need to watch it. And they're about 25, 30 minutes, the typical commute. Yep. And like you said, we talk about sexuality, but a range of other issues from a biblical perspective. So Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. I appreciate your ministry and that also. So thanks for spending some time with us, sharing your heart and your wisdom on these issues. Pray uh, God, we continue to use you in mighty ways for the kingdom. Thanks, Dan. Really enjoyed it. I did too. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com dot com slash college faith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond. <laughs>